<laughs> well, thank you. Um, and yes, uh, I I think of myself as fortunate, as blessed uh, to call City Church uh, a second home for me. I mean, I'm not here every week, but um, I'm proud to be more than just a visitor and feel very much part of the family here. And uh, those of you who don't know, my name's Dave Nystrom, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm a professor at Western Seminary here in Northern California, uh, teaching primarily New Testament, but um, uh, I also teach uh, uh, church history and some systematic theology. I um, grew up here in Northern California, and I've lived in the Sacramento area on and off for yeah, a good portion, a good portion of my uh, of my life. The pastor Mark Meese and I've known each other for I think, 20, uh, 20 years. So uh, uh, just proud and pleased to be a part of this uh, this meeting. So our text for the day is uh, Daniel five uh, verses ten through seventeen, and Daniel uh, has a, a place of um, importance at least in, in scripture, uh, beyond just its place in, in what we call the Old Testament, because Daniel figures prominently in how the New Testament uh, understands uh, God at work. Daniel 7, for instance, is maybe one of the single most important passages uh, for understanding how Jesus understands himself, and certainly is foundational uh, for understanding Jesus' notion of the kingdom of God and what it means to be uh, an agent of God's kingdom and God's will. And uh, Daniel 5 is a pretty famous chapter. It's got some famous stuff in it, uh, from, especially from the material from the last week, the, the, uh, the writing on the wall, the hand, the disembodied hand. I remember as a kid in Sunday school saying, some of you were as old as I am, which is pretty old. Uh, but the flannel ground and the little uh, uh, like figurines, and there was this, this kind of a giant pancake right on the wall, I can still remember uh, from childhood Sunday school. Um, so uh, that's not this passage, though. This passage comes right after 10 through 17. But a big picture, Daniel 5 um, is the chapter of the unexpected. Uh, I think seeing a giant disembodied man writing on the wall when you're having a party with your friends would be some serious, unexpected uh, event. Uh, surprise you. Um, freak you out, I'm sure, with me. Uh, and then, in, uh, and then uh, as they're wondering about this, uh, the text says, the queen appears. So that's, not, that's not the king's wife, the current king that is getting Belshazzar. But that's uh, his... Maybe his grandmother, probably the queen uh, that was married to uh, the more famous king, Nebuchadnezzar. That'd be a surprise. Verse 3 of chapter 5 tells us that the queen uh, and the concubines, that is the queen of, of Belshazzar, was already there, already there. So this would be uh, a visit from somebody older, wiser, who'd been around a lot, a lot longer. That'd be a surprise. So, a little bit of background, who are these people? So this, this king is part of a dynasty that uh, historians know as the Neo-Babylonians, or the new 
battle elements. Um, and they uh, succeeded uh, people called the um, Assyrians, who, they're the ones, the Assyrians are the ones that uh, defeated the northern kingdom, 722, 721 BC, uh, and the Neo Babylonians, they're the ones who ended up uh, defeating or conquering the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, in about 586. And then the founder of their dynasty is a guy named Nabopolassar, but the most famous person is Nebuchadnezzar. And he's the guy that, uh, that actually laid siege to Jerusalem four different times, and then finally ended up taking uh, the Jews captive, the representatives of the Jews captive, to Babylon. Now, after he dies, there is turmoil. Uh, his son, uh, almost certainly was murdered, and then other relatives, friends and relatives got involved, and there was a king named Nabonidus, and then his son, Belshazzar. And it's possible, it's probable actually, that Nabonidus is, is still king, and they just call Belshazzar king, like second king, even though we don't really think of it that way. But that's uh, apparently what's happening is that Nabonidus is still alive while this event happened. Uh, involving Belshazzar. Now, for a hundred years or a hundred years ago, uh, historians knew about Nebuchadnezzar, but it's only been the last 40 or 50, 60 years that this interim uh, has been uh, figured out by historians. Um, and it's not a very nice, it's not a story of a very nice uh, family uh, dynamic. Um, as I said, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar, there's the murder of Nebuchadnezzar. Sun, and then there's turmoil, there's um, frequent and bloody exchanges between. Okay. There's frequent and. Uh, that, was, that was interesting. That was exciting. Yeah. There's frequent and even bloody exchanges of power between relatives and friends. Relatives and friends. Let's wrap our heads around that a little bit. Relatives and friends, and there's exchanges, bloody exchanges of power between relatives and friends. You know, if you're if you're a fan at all of the Lord of the Rings, or you've seen the movie, maybe you remember uh, the, the backstory is the finding of this ring. There's two friends, uh, Daigle and Smeagol, and Daigle finds the ring, and they're buddies. But the but the lust for what this ring is. Within like 10 minutes of them finding the ring, the one murders the other. Now, um, Constantine is famous uh, in history, the Emperor Constantine, uh, because he's the one that uh, made Christianity legal. He didn't make it the official religion of the empire, but he made it legal, or he made it no longer illegal to be a Christian. And then his family dynasty. Uh, ruled the Roman Empire for 50 or 60 years. And one of his distant relatives of a further generation is a guy named Julian the Apostate, 361 to 363. He's called the Apostate because he didn't want anything to do with Christianity. Why? Because he watched all of his relatives, his uncles and his cousins, murder one another, Howard. Power, money, lust, these things have a real pull on us human beings. 
great, and make us start to pay too little attention to one another. They make, some, they make us do stuff that we tell kindergartners not to do when they're out of recess. Mm. And yet we as adults often display an addiction to the pull of money and power. When I think about what I hear, what I see on the news, and what I see going on uh, uh, culturally, just interactions between people in our country, stuff that was, I think, a bit hidden, a rottenness below the surface. Like when the, when the tide goes out, and you start to see what's, what's on the on the on the pilot falling on the paper, that was what's below the surface doesn't look doesn't look so good. And so this uh, pandemic has exposed what's been there all along, and that is um, this collective truth about our individual self-absorption. No, I'm not going to wear one of those COVID masks. And by this I mean I have a right not to. And you don't you, don't you dare tell me I, uh, that I should. And I'm getting angry if, if even just watch you wear one. Does it even occur to me to think about how my decision might have an impact on you? Amen. Or is it just all about me and my sense of my rights? Is it just an example of me not really caring about anybody else? The question here is not whether or not you have a right to do that, but whether or not it is right to do that. I'll say that again. The question here is not whether or not you have a right to do that, but whether or not it is right to do that. So in the news this last week, uh, a story about a woman, I don't know where it was, but um, uh, she was driving by and she not just yelled, but swore at some, I think they were city workers, but they were workers on their lunch break. And uh, they were driving kind of a beat up pickup truck. Uh, probably driving a car that looks a little like the car I drive. And they caught it on the iPhone camera, iPhone video. Um, yelling at them that she didn't want them driving their ugly, blinky, blank, blank pickup in front of her house anymore. Mm. It's a public street. Mm. We have an addiction to ourselves. Uh, the gravitational pull of our own self-interest. Now, uh, Belshazzar has no clue who's going to the right when he sees that army. And the Queen Mother, uh, the former Queen, uh, appears suddenly to tell the King there's someone who can help. Now, under similar circumstances years before, Nebuchadnezzar was respectful of Daniel. He seemed to understand the moment. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, although frightened by the hand, is foolishly, stupidly arrogant. He says to Daniel, now probably 70, 80 years old, hey, you, you're one of the 
those captives, aren't you? And he says, people tell me, you can interpret stuff. Was Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel, the same Daniel, I know. The spirit of the holy gods is in me. So, what does this text tell us? The first point is uh, we can be for God. In the world of money and power and fame, we will be for God. Daniel had displayed insight, the ability to understand the meaning, displayed a keen mind, wide ranging. He had displayed knowledge. He had displayed discernment and intelligence, but he had been cast aside. The world is fickle, and it does not always judge accurately quality or worth. The new king, Belshazzar, who maybe was really the, like we might say, the prince of Egypt or the heir apparent, um, he was acting in the interest of, and I'll put it this way, the empire of human desire. Now, in this world, whether we know it or not, there really are two, two kingdoms, two empires. You know, Jesus in Mark 1 says, If by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, that pretty much makes the case that Jesus doesn't think the world as it is is under the reign of the kingdom of God. It's under the reign of something else. Mm. Now, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but God trusted it to our first parents, and we, in effect, collectively have foolishly let some robber in and run the show. That's the that's the parable of the strong man. You can buy the strong man who's broken into your house. So, in our world, there are these two empires at work. For one is an empire, the empire of human desire. And really, that's the, that's the force of evil. It's Satan and the principalities and powers that. That they have their own desire, but they know how to play us um, for really for their own best interests. You know, also, we don't fight against flesh and blood, even though that's what looks like, but we fight against the principalities and powers and the, and the powers of the air. So, um, the new king, Belshazzar, he, he was acting in the interest of the empire of human desire. Which, as I've just said, we will be forgotten. Even the power players of the empire of human desire are going to be forgotten. People that are at the top of the game today, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years from now, uh, all that glory and pomp and authority will be dust. So the second observation I think is about. Is about the gifts the world gives. So let me read the text. 
you know, if you last issue any taxes to the Romans or not, and he said, uh, take a look at the coin. You know, who's the news of the coin? Well, it's Caesar's image. And then Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's. Um, and it's not a trick question, it's actually just um, an awareness that uh, some, most decisions we face uh, are somewhat complex. Yes, the coin has Caesar's image on it. So that coin is Caesar's, but everything is God's. And in fact, Caesar has power only because God trusted our first parents with running the show here. And so this is what we have done with it. We have actually created systems like the Roman Empire that sometimes do good, but often uh, dehumanize, demonize, devalue human life. We live in one kingdom, you and I. The empire of human desire. But we represent another. If you have become a Christian, you are a citizen of that kingdom. You just happen to be living here. So to which kingdom are we loyal? And Daniel was clear about the kingdom which he was loyal. And he served faithfully the Babylonians, the Neo-Babylonians, but his ultimate allegiance was to God. Amen. So he was able, before Jesus even talked about this, whose image is on the coin, he, he understood this sort of double responsibility. Primary to God and God's kingdom and the values of the kingdom. But we actually live here in the midst of the empire of human desire. And so the question, to which kingdom are we loyal? Um, the answer isn't actually so simply binary. Yes, we always have to be loyal to God's kingdom and God's values and values of the kingdom of God. But we also need to live them out in this world, in this kingdom. So to which kingdom are we loyal? The kingdom of bluster and of desire and of indifference to humanity and of a denial of our responsibility to God. Now the ancients had gods, of course thousands um, But their idea of religion uh, was so different than ours. Um, if you think about what you might remember about the ancient gods, uh, Apollo and Zeus, etc. I mean, they're like a bunch of superhero junior hires. You know, who don't have a lot of responsibility, who don't operate in ways that are, uh, well, they operate in ways that are essentially uh, selfish. And so in ancient religion, uh, both Roman and Greek, and also Mesopotamian to a large degree, um, the idea of having a relationship with God was that was pretty foreign. Basically, um, the gods needed to be placated. So if something had gone wrong in your life, 
the idea was figure out what God is angry at you, and then religion consisted of uh, putting something on your head, a handkerchief or some covering, and maybe pouring a little wine out, and so you placate the gods. You make them not angry at you anymore. But the idea of a relationship, and the gods as, as moral exemplars, that's, uh, that's unusual. Uh, but it was certainly there in Judaism, and of course it's there in Christianity. So with Yahweh, the idea is not to placate an angry God, but the idea is to uh, learn from Yahweh uh, his heart. And Jesus, of course, uh, articulates this when he says, um, you are to love the Lord God with all your heart, and soul and mind and strength. He will also say, uh, no student is about a teacher, but a student is fully trained when they become like their teacher. So that means it's not simply what we know, that's important. So it's patterns of, it's not just knowing, but it's patterns of thoughts, but it's also patterns of hearts. And those then uh, determine patterns of action. Is that complex? So uh, Daniel, of course, uh, understands this. The world wants to give us gifts because the world um, doesn't know any better. And the world thinks that we uh, can be satiated by the merely superficial. And so Daniel thirdly says, keep your gifts. Now later on he's going to accept them, but he's going to accept them on his own terms, not on the terms set by Belshazzar. Keep your gifts. Don't let money or things have a hold on you. Deny money its power. Uh, give it Away. That's uh, the teaching of Scripture. It's the teaching of Jesus. And we can say the same thing. Um, deny things their power. Deny desire its power over us. Daniel says, I don't want your diabolical gifts. <laughs> They're going to imperil. They're going to imperil me. Because he knows, as the New Testament knows, the biological nature of sin. Sin starts um, when, we, when a random idea crosses our the movie screen of our brain, and that just because there's some wild idea crosses your brain doesn't mean that's the sin. But sin starts when we decide we're gonna we're gonna save that preview of coming attractions and watch it over and over and over in our mind. And no one else knows that's what's going on in our hearts and minds. Sin starts when we Cultivate the idea. So, just as um, when you plant a seed in the ground, four inches deep, and you water it, and that seed starts to grow, nobody can see that it's growing above ground. All that is happening in Christ. So, sin starts there. And then James says, um, you know, then it breaks the surface and it starts to flower, and, uh, and then it reproduces. So, 
as Augustine said about sin, be careful what you love, because we become subject to the things we love, and subjects cannot judge. Isn't that right? We do something, and we're actually horrified by it the first time, but then when the idea of doing it again comes along, we're not, we're not quite so horrified, as we, you know, we did it by, you know, yesterday. Uh, and then when the third time, it's become normalized. So Daniel says, I don't want your diabolical gifts. I'm not going to accept them on your terms. But, Belshazzar, I will bless this world. I will tell you what it means. So part of the meaning of this text I mean for us today is, um, what does it mean for us to bless this world in this moment? You know, most of the time, I think we react. And the coronavirus has, as it were, I said earlier, pulled the time out, way out. And it has exposed what has been underneath all the time. But the pillars that hold up that fear are, are decayed maybe rock. And there was a lot more rock there than maybe we knew or certainly that was visible to the eye. And I wonder of you, um, is there any compassion in our culture? And if there is, and I know there is, why is it that the stories are all on the other side? What does that tell us about us and our fascination? Where is the wisdom to discern what is truly worthwhile and not really clear? So I have a couple uh, conclusions, more than a couple, frankly. Five, so you can count down and know how far we're going. The first conclusion I want to offer is ideas matter. Um, ideas matter. Ideas are like uh, gases that comprise the atmosphere. When ideas get out there, in our culture, uh, they get reproduced and replayed, and they start to enter our minds and hearts. Wholesome ideas matter, and defective ideas matter. You know, Paul said in Philippians, he wrote, uh, whatever is good and true and you know, noble, think about those things. He didn't say whatever is relates to Christology and sociology, think about those things. He, he, he knew that just making sure that we were putting good ideas in our mind was going to uh, shape and uh, even direct um, uh, our futures. It's going to determine our future. So ideas matter. Collectively, the ideas that are running around our culture create the cultural atmosphere. And like the physical atmosphere, we're breathing in. And if you're in a car with five smokers and the, and the, and the windows rolled up, you're breathing in that air, whether you like it or not, whether you're a smoker or not. So positive and wholesome ideas also matter. So let's be careful, let's be aware when we hear ourselves talk or we watch ourselves think about something we did spasmodically earlier in the day, let's be aware of where, of, of what idea, what cultural idea is the foundation for that. You know, Paul said, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of 
the story. Meaning his assumption is we are being squeezed right now. So let's be aware of it. Secondly, what can we expect from human governments, from human institutions? Well, remember that, you know, that those words, and it's funny that uh, they didn't, I mean, the words written on the wall, many, many technical person, those were in Aramaic. So everybody in the room could read Aramaic. They just didn't have any clue what they meant. And it took Daniel uh, to make that clear. So what can we expect from human governments and human institutions? Um, well, uh, they are the exercisers of authority that was delegated to our persons. Now, there are times that human organizations are going to do what's good and right and true. But they are not the kingdom of God. And they have a different purpose. And so, um, they are, the very moment after they do something good or right or true, are going to do something that, frankly, uh, leans toward the malignant. So, we shouldn't expect human institutions, shouldn't expect government or corporations to always do what is the, uh, uh, the, the spiritually uh, authentic thing, or what we'd say is a morally Christian thing. Um, we just shouldn't expect that, because it's not going to happen. And we need to make sure that the major idea uh, that's shaping the atmosphere that we read, um, the major compass of ideas, comes from uh, scripture, from uh, the teaching of Jesus himself. Thirdly, uh, what should we do relative to public square structures? Well, we should not retreat. We should not uh, uh, cluster ourselves away from the debate, the public sphere debate, square debate, because the world actually needs the compassion and the wisdom of God. It may have no appetite for it, and its attention span is far too short, but the world needs it. And even as we serve, let us not capitulate. Daniel, remember, did not cease to pray, even when the king ordered it. Ordered that no God would worship besides himself. Fourthly, what do we do relative to individual self-match? Well, it's important to stand for, for godly principles in the public sphere. But it's also important to be connected to folks um, who may not be angry Christians, may not be Christians at all, may be angry about Christianity, who are, who are caught. This is not preaching at them. This is being interested in them as human beings and showing them compassion of Jesus without a parent's um, plan in mind. Uh, the faith historically has grown exponentially. There were times in which it grew exponentially during the pandemic. 
and not become slowly and unintentionally a double agent for the way of the world. Amen. Amen. So, Amen. The situation that Daniel finds himself in in chapter 5 is not like those we experience pretty much every day. Where um, the things that we value, certainly the things that we Christian life are often undervalued by the world, and so we can be forgotten. Um, and yet we can sometimes be called upon. And so let us. Uh, not desire the gifts of this world in the world's terms. Let us make sure the air you're breathing is the air of the gospel. And let us commit to be God's ambassadors for the kingdom here in this world, because it is his desire to redeem it. Father God, we thank you for your love for us and for your tenderness. I thank you for giving me because there are plenty of times I miss what's right in front There are plenty of times um, what I've just preached um, is a little beyond my grasp to actually accomplish. So help me, help us all to be clear about keeping our eyes on you and keeping our hearts soft and tender for the world in which we live and for the people that inhabit it. May we be your ambassadors in this place we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.